Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and recording tips to get your music out to the masses. This week, we're going to be talking about some news, including a new pedal from Cattle Inbred. We're going to be talking about the history of, you know, a little-known amp company. you probably never heard of them. It's really reserved just for the cool kids. You know, Fender amps, yeah, not, not very well-known. We're going to be talking about the tone of Chris Stapleton on a song you should probably leave, And then we're going to be going over how to use compression in country music. Without further ado, let's get into the news. So first up, Donner has released the Hush guitar. Now, if you're not familiar with Donner, they were a manufacturer that started out by making some of your Amazon-exclusive knockoffs of your favorite guitar pedals. You know what I'm talking about. Like, you you really want a Paul Cochran Timmy, so you're balking at the price a little bit. You go into Amazon, you type in Timmy, and then you get the... Keiko Tommy, that kind of deal. Uh, I had some of the early Donner offerings that I used on a baseboard, and I wasn't really impressed, but recently they've started making higher quality products, including guitars and amps, that I'm actually pretty happy with. Donner's trying their hand at non-traditional instruments now, and they've just released a new guitar called the Hush. This isn't Donner's first guitar, as I said, and they've made a few electric and acoustic guitars before, mostly like Stratocaster copies with, I think, an LP and a P bass somewhere in there. But this is their first that seems to be along the lines of their own design with their own R&D. This specific guitar is one of those travel guitars. You've probably seen the kind before where it's, you know, a neck with a wooden body that's slightly wider than the neck, but attached to the body, there's a few metal rods that make the rough shape of a guitar to make it comfortable to play when you're seated. These rods can be removed to make it easier to transport as well, and that's the case with this model. If you want to break it down, you can't pull the neck off like some models, but you can pull these rods off to get you just a thin bar. The Hush is headless, and it's got a single piezo pickup and an onboard preamp. This preamp has a two-band EQ with a volume knob, as well as something kind of unique. It's a phase switch, which shifts your output signal 180 degrees out of phase in order to prevent feedback. You can plug earbuds straight into the preamp for silent playing on the go, as well as run it through a traditional amplifier. One of the cooler things about it, at least to me, is pretty minor. It's that the Allen key for the tuners is stored in the body and held in place with a magnet. So because it's headless, it's got tuners mounted into the body of the guitar. These tuners are held in place in their little channel with a magnet, but in a way that actually looks super sleek and intuitive. It's not like some nonsense where it's just slapped onto the body somewhere. I don't know if you guys have seen the old, uh, like, I'm pretty sure it was Jackson, but it might have been Ibanez or Dean, where they had the Allen keys that adjusted the Floyd Rose, like, on a bracket attached to the back of the headstock. I don't know, it's something about that, I just didn't like it, but... These Allen keys are actually in the body of the guitar in their own little pocket, and I love sort of hidden functionality like that. I think it's super cool. Reviews for it actually look pretty great, and at 289 bucks, I think it's priced fairly considering the feature set that you get. You know, it's not a deal that's like a lot of these are where it's, oh, it's too good to be true, and it ends up being too good to be true, but at the same time, it's not super expensive. 
I'm honestly pretty happy that they've done this as these types of companies typically don't release many original products. They're mostly just clones of other people's products so they don't actually have to do the R&D themselves. But this has a Donner designed preamp and pickup and I think that's super cool. You know, I've been looking for a travel guitar on and off for a while, but I've mostly been put off by the price of some of the models out there because I think it's crazy to me that a travel guitar is going to cost more than a few of my guitars that I've got here. I, I, something in my head is just like, okay, I don't know if that's if that's worth it. But considering the price on this and the feature set, I'm honestly considering giving it a try. It seems like a really good deal. Next up, Catalan Bread has released the X40 Soft Focus Reverb. So the X40 is a new reverb pedal that's attempting to be a rack mount reverb in a box, specifically going after the reverb section of the Yamaha FX500. Catalan Bread themselves have dubbed this pedal the Instant Shoegaze Button, and it makes sense considering how heavily used the FX500 was in shoegaze. If you're not familiar with this rack mount, it's, uh, it's something that Yamaha called a simul effect, and it's essentially a bunch of effects in a box that is like a half U space for a uh, rack mount system. And each one's got five effects. The FX500 specifically has compression, distortion, EQ, modulation, and reverb. It was kind of limiting in that you could only change the order of the last two effects. So you could swap reverb and then modulation or modulation and then reverb but everything else was fixed where it was. And then you could change a few of the parameters on these. They weren't the most versatile thing in the world, but they were great for shoegaze considering the crazy sounds you could get out of them. Now shoegaze as a genre is generally hallmarked by a use of numerous effects at once to create really complex and layered soundscapes that some might call noise. And let's face it, like, Bad shoegaze artists, it is noise. It just ends up being nonsense. But it's much more involved than a lot of people see, especially when it's done right. It can sound really good, and there's a lot of thought put into it, more than just, man, how many how many pedals can I put in a chain and then turn all of them on? Let me just send a bong rip through this delay. Like That's not what's going on with the majority of shoegaze. <laughs> The X40 is super cool in the fact that it's taking your signal and it's running it through three separate reverb chains at a time. So all three start with a plate reverb and one heads straight to the output. The second gets a little bit of an octave up treatment and the third runs through a really wild sounding chorus. There's controls for symphony, which control the octave, mod, which controls the chorus, verb, which controls just the normal reverb, mix, which determines how much of those three chains versus your dry signal heads to output, and volume, which determines the overall level. Most pedals that I've seen that attempt to cram a rack mount effect into a pedal enclosure don't turn out too well, with the exception of some compressors. But, I mean, let's face it, it's not easy reducing something by 10 times the size. If you're taking older stuff that, you know, was around before uh, surface mount devices or was around before solid state components, yeah, of course, it's going to be easy to take something like that and and push it down into a pedal size because they're huge because of the parts they had. And then modern times, technology's gotten smaller. But when you're taking something like an FX500 that's been around since after the advent of surface mount devices and computer chips and things like that, trying to cram all of that down into a pedal enclosure is, is a tall order, right? 
And granted, they made some sacrifices here, right? Like you don't have the full functionality of the FX500. You're not using it as a full effect. It's just as a reverb and a lot of it, you can't control the same parameters as you would on the rack mount. But I feel like it really captures the essence of what it's being used for in a shoegaze type setting. I'm not one for trippy sounding reverbs usually. My trippiest sounding reverb is probably the Walrus Fathom, and I only use that when I really gotta get crazy for something. Usually if I'm using the Fathom, it's left on the hall or the plate setting. It's like a really subtle, always on reverb. Uh, but this is making me reevaluate my life choices and consider having some more shoegaze in my life. It's also a benefit that it's able to be run at 18 volts as you can max out headroom extremely easily when you're using multiple effects beforehand as you would in a typical shoegaze setting. That added headroom is great for a reverb pedal as it just sounds disgusting when you clip something that isn't meant to be clipped. The demos are really trippy and unique and I think it hits its purpose on the nose. If you want to pick one up yourself, it's 209 bucks and it's available now. Now PRS has released a video factory tour of their Cortec Indonesia factory. So it's always cool seeing how our favorite instruments and gadgets are made. I love watching the interviews with manufacturers and seeing the looks inside the factory, you know, behind the scenes if you will. And PRS has just released another such video detailing the Indonesia Court factory where the SEs are made. So the video goes over the entire factory, which is located in Java, and the process from start to finish of how the factory makes their SE line. The SE line is their budget option overseas made guitars that share similar shapes and finishes to their higher end CE and standard models. The entire video is uh, narrated by the COO of PRS, a guy named Jack Higginbotham. God. And, and I'll be honest, the narration is kind of jarring and it just has this strange kind of vibe to it like his voice almost sounds threatening which is weird to talk about for a factory tour of a guitar brand but you just watch it and, and listen to his voice it's just kind of weird you know here I am saying that and I'm just narrating an hour of nonsense right but uh, the video shots of everything being made are really cool a majority of the guitars are done via CNC which is pretty common nowadays even for your American guitars a lot of manufacturers are using CNC just to keep up with demand and keep up output but it shows some of the hand done processes like veneer selection corrections painting sanding and finishing as well I think that's super cool it's really nice to me that they do all the fret work on these by hand and I've noticed that one of the larger issues with budget guitars produced overseas come from the frets a lot of times they're not leveled correctly or they have sharp edges, which granted that may be from the guitar moving between climates and the shipping process and the wood shrinking a little bit, but I digress. It's still cool to see that they're doing a very important part of it by hand and they seem to take great care with it. A lot of this hardware that they have makes me jealous in the video. Uh, one of the cooler pieces was a six-headed drill that had bits spaced out in the measurements of the tuner holes for the headstock. So the entire headstock was able to be drilled out at once. Court is one of the larger overseas manufacturers, with Samic seeming to be its main competitor. If you've got a few Squires or Epiphones, chances are you may have a guitar that came out of that factory complex. You can usually tell by the serial number if you check online. The codes kind of change year to year depending on the line, but if you... Figure out what year your guitar was made and go to the serial number. The prefix should have 
some designation as to what factory it was made in, and it probably came out of there. They have a pretty high output. If you got 20 minutes to spare and you want to check it out yourself, the video's up on PRS's YouTube channel. I hope you'll find it as cool as I did. This week, we're going to be talking about Fender. So we talked about Ethmic, or Fender Musical Instrument Corporation, before. You know, it's hard not to when you're in the guitar world, and for good reason. Fender has countless inventions and products throughout history that have stood the test of time for over 70 years in most cases, and they remain one of the largest names in guitar and amp manufacturing today. You'll regularly hear countless people, myself included, say things like Fender style, tweed style, black panel style, or silver face style. But what does that mean? Most of these terms simply refer to different Fender amp lines throughout various years. Many of them feature different odds and ends, but with each era of Fender, there's a specific tonality that's imparted on the amps. This week, we're going to be time traveling through Fender's amp lines with the help of our trusty Mustang GTX 50, as it's great for modeling Fender tones, and it includes a host of different amp models from different time periods. Plus, doing it this way is going to be a hell of a lot cheaper than buying multiple vintage amps from the 50s through the 70s. Fender amps were originally designed to be a working man's solution, so I think it'll keep with the spirit of Leo Fender and with the spirit of my wallet if we approach it this way. <laughs> See, I'm such a great comedian, especially when I can force people to laugh for me. It's wonderful. First up, we got the tweed phase. This is from 1948 to 1959. Our story begins here, and prior to this, Leo Fender had primarily been creating PA and radio speakers that were used for amplifying entire bands that were using microphones to capture their sound. There's a few examples of early guitar amplifiers, some that modern-day Fender has even released reissues of, such as the Woody. Uh, it's a series of three different amplifiers that Fender had made. But these are few and far between, and typically not considered an era of Fender amps so much as a novelty, if that makes sense. Between 1948 and 1959, we see this Tweed era. And this is so named due to the yellow tan and brown enclosure, the Tweed, that was uh, around the cabinet in place of where we normally see Tolex today. The first examples in this era are called TV Front as the front of their cabinet frames the rounded corner speaker grill similar to the appearance of televisions at the time. The first few of these were the Princeton, the Deluxe, the Pro-Amp, and the Super. These amps had very similar DNA, with most models having only three tubes and designed to simply be a method of amplifying a clean electric guitar. We start to see these models evolve a bit into wide panel and narrow panel cabinets, with a few new models introduced such as the Bassman and the Bandmaster, but to get an idea of what this sounded like, we're going to be running a Tele into the GTX modeling a 57 Champ at a reasonable volume. We're doing this at first so that we don't push it too hard. You'll see it does what it says it does. It amplifies the electric guitar. Um, the reason we're not really cranking this amp is I want to use it as it was intended first, just to get a good clean signal out of it. Because as you start to push these, well, you'll see later on. First up, Here's just the clean signal from the telly into the champ.
Now, I think this era of Fender is one of the defining moments of both overdriven guitar sounds and guitar amplification in general. You see, these initial amplifying offerings were relatively low wattage, and they had small speakers by today's standards. The Champ, the one that we just modeled, was the smallest of this era. It was a mere 4 watts, and it only had an 8-inch speaker and a single volume knob. Other larger models of this era, like the Bassman, had two separate volume knobs, one for each input, bright and normal, a two-band EQ, and a presence control, but it still lacked a gain control. It had four 10-inch speakers and only produced 26 watts from what my research could find. It's a little fuzzy there. Many modern amplifier lines tend to start at 20 to 50 watts and go up from there. You know, I can only imagine how hard these early tweed amps had to be pushed to keep up with drummers in the room. These high output settings, combined with small speakers, produced a very rich and creamy overdriven tone, with just a bit of bite that's still a favorite overdriven tone of many guitar players today. It's kind of ironic, as like I said, these amps weren't really designed to be overdriven, but they still had an amazing overdriven sound, and they broke up very musically. If we take that same 57 champ model, and we turn the volume up to 10, we get a great moderate breakup that has a sound all its own. Let's take a listen. When it comes to the sound of tweed amps, I'd have to describe them as very earthy. They're mid-range and they're low-end heavy, and they sound almost boxy, but in a way all their own that actually sounds good in those amps. The boxiness here isn't a bad thing. They're not the most versatile, but they're definitely something fun to play around with and would be great in certain gigging scenarios, as a lot of guitar is mid-focused content. If you do want to see some of these amps in person, I got great news, especially if you're in New York. So the wife and I took a trip to upstate New York to see family last year. We stopped by a place called The House Guitars in Rochester. And this store has some serious mojo. It's been around since, in the same location since the late 70s. It's seen numerous visits from famous guitarists, and it has memorabilia all over the place, including a Christmas card from Earthquaker Devices that was pretty cool. The star of the show here is in the back room, though, where they've got a few of the smaller Fender Tweed amps from the 50s tucked away. It was super cool being able to see a piece of history for sale in a shop like that. You know, if only I had 7K to drop on one and bring it home. The next stop in our tube-powered DeLorean is between 1959 and 1963, the brown panel era. This was a relatively short-lived phase that preceded CBS's acquisition of Fender and a marked decline in quality after this. As you could have guessed, it's so named because the control panel that the pots were mounted to was brown during this time period. We see some of the first Fender amp heads, which are referred to as piggyback models. They have a small amp head on top of a typically 2x12 cabinet. And during this time period, we start to see more and more Fender models, which include fancy new features such as onboard reverb and tremolo. The reverb typically being provided by a spring tank and the tremolo being tube driven. These models with onboard effects were typically similar to the older models, but they just had the added features. This ultimately pushed some of the originals to the side and out of production in favor of the more feature-laden amps, such as the original Fender Twin, making way for the ever-popular Twin Reverb. A great example from this period that's also present on the Mustang is the Fender Deluxe from 1961. 
We got four inputs this time around, two normal inputs and two bright inputs, with each pair laying claim to its own volume and tone controls. There's also an onboard tremolo with speed and intensity controls to give you a little bit of some volume adjustment there. Let's take a listen to the sound of it with a Fender Strat on the neck pickup. There's also some spring reverb being provided by the 63 spring reverb effect inside of the GTX. This era of Fender saw some great innovation in the onboard effects department, and this is probably the defining trait of this phase of development. At this point, we're starting to see guitar pedals being developed, but they're still not a crazy popular thing like they are now. Brown panel amps still have that earthy mid-focus DNA that the tweed amps have, but they're a lot more clear and have more high-frequency content that almost makes me think of Vic Flick's tone on the James Bond theme or like 60s surf music. They're a little bit more usable than a wider variety of genres than the tweed in my opinion, but they're not necessarily better or worse sounding, just easier to make them work in the mix. Black panel amps are probably the most recognizable phase of Fender amps running from 1963 to 1967. This is during the CBS acquisition, which took place in 1964, and we saw some of the last renditions of Fender amps following the original designs of the founding crew of Fender. These amps are still extremely popular and sought after today, and they regularly receive reissues, including the Digital Tone Master series recently released by Fender. For this demo, I'm going to be using a Jaguar, as it's been released by this time, and honestly, it's my favorite Fender guitar. It's absolutely killer. Let's give a listen to a black panel Fender amplifier. I personally credit the Black Panel era as the time period that really defined Fender sound as a brand. If you tell me to think of a Fender amp or a Fender amp tone, I'm thinking you're talking about a twin reverb from this time. And I think that's the big draw from this phase of their history. In my opinion, Black Panel amps are a lot smoother and creamier sounding than Brown Panel or Tweed amps. They're great for those of you that want some squeaky clean tones or want a great pedal platform amp. And they're probably the easiest of the bunch to dial in and work into the mix, as most models at this point typically include a wider range of tone controls, more onboard effects, and just overall an easier amp to play with and dial in. Silver panel amps were around between 1967 and 1980, and they're a point of contention among Fender enthusiasts, as they're not thought to be as great a quality as black panel amps. They saw a marked number of changes to the traditional designs that made them unique and sound great, and that was one of the issues. This theory is uh, somewhat supported by the fact that while there's five tweed models, one brown panel model, and three black panel models on the Mustang, there's not a single silver panel model to be found. Ironically, right? Thankfully, the Two Notes Cab M Plus has a 1974 silver panel basement model on it, so we're going to use that to demonstrate this tone. Thank you. 
To me, the silver panel era Fender is a bit bland in my opinion. There's a similar low end and scoop mids to the black panel era, but it lacks some of the high end clarity that made those amps so special and unique. They're not as chimey, if that makes sense. They still have their place, and they're great for a very generic, clean guitar sound, and sometimes that's exactly what you need, and I think they do that job very well. But in terms of the ingenuity and the total footprint that the other eras ushered in, I don't think the silver panel amps really stack up. After 1980, Fender seems to branch out into more solid-state offerings and a few new modern models like the Bassbreaker 15 and the Blues Junior. Both of those are successful, great-sounding amps in their own right. But manufacturing starts to diversify, and the DNA of a particular era isn't really defined anymore. They still make great new innovations like the Vibro King and the Excelsior, as well as new technology like the Acoustasonic amp and the Tone Master series, not to mention the Mustang line. This really wraps up our history of Fender amps quite nicely. It can be sort of daunting hearing everybody talk about, oh well, I like a tweed amp more than a silver panel champ and not understanding where this might come from. I know I used to think that it was merely different colorways, you know, there being a tweed champ and a silver panel champ, uh, sort of like how pedals have different colorways until I started really getting into it years ago. So I hope this was able to clear things up for you guys and give you the warm and fuzzy when it comes to talking tone in regards to different styles of Fender amps. So I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, he came over to the studio because he wanted to check everything out. He was also looking for some new gear on a budget to get him some great tones for his first electric rig. He's played for about five years, and up to this point, he's always played acoustic. In the process of recommending things, I asked him what kind of music he'd be playing the most, and he said he really enjoyed country music and specifically name-dropped the song You Should Probably Leave by Chris Stapleton. But he also wanted more versatility to be able to play things like Red Hot Chili Peppers and John Mayer. Now, of course, if you guys have listened to the show for long enough, with his budget in mind and with the type of tones he wanted, you could probably guess that I recommended him a Mustang GTX 50 and a Squire Classic Vibe Strat. They're two pieces of gear that I've talked about a lot on the show because they're truly great things for people on a budget. He came over and he played around with a few things, and he ended up liking the Mustang a lot, but for a guitar, he really liked the Jaguar. It's a great choice, and it's extremely versatile due to the unique switching system, but his decision was mostly based on comfort, and I find that kind of funny. Uh, he said the Jaguar felt better than the Strat, and it's interesting. The Jaguar's body shape was actually designed by Leo Fender to feel more comfortable when playing seated, as it originated with a jazz master, and most jazz musicians at the time played seated. All in all, he seemed happy with the two choices and like it'll work out for him. But it got me thinking that I've never done a country tone on the show before, and I thought, what better place to start than with this song? So Chris Stapleton actually has a pretty unique career compared to other artists we've talked about on the show, and it seems to me to be one of the silent partners, so to speak, of the last decade of country music. He's got 170 credits for songwriting, and has co-written a few chart toppers for artists like uh, Kenny Chesney, George Strait, and Luke Martin, as well as collaborating outside his genre with artists like Adele and Taylor Swift. Chris moved to Nashville in 2001, which mirrors how a lot of people with aspirations for acting moved to Hollywood to try to make it big in the industry, except he was successful. 
He signed with a small publishing firm, and he worked with them on projects before joining a band called The Steel Drivers from 2007 to 2010. He then founded a band called The Johnson Brothers, who saw limited success between 2010 and 2013. And then in 2015, he released his first solo album. Uh, that, that album was called Traveler, and he's since released three more, From a Room Volumes 1 and 2, as well as Starting Over. This particular song is from Starting Over, and it was released in 2020. For the guitar, uh, this choice is kind of interesting to me, as most country artists use Telecasters to get the signature twang the genre is known for. Chris Stapleton uses a 62 Jazzmaster reissue. Now, of course, I thought it was funny, but after listening to the song, his tone is a lot more mellow, and this definitely explains why. If you tuned in last episode, we talked about different models of guitar pickups and how they affect the tone. Jazzmaster pickups are wound with a shorter, fatter coil than traditional single coils, like those present on a telly, which contributes to the warmer, thicker sound here. Another unique thing about the Jazzmaster is that the two pickups are wound opposite, so when you've got the switch in the middle position, you'll get the hum-canceling effect of a humbucker. For this song, though, we're going to keep our guitar on the neck pickup. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not about to drop $1,700 on a 62 Jazzmaster reissue. So let's look at our options. You guessed it. First off, Squire Classic Vibe 60's Jazzmaster. $419. And both of these other models that I'm going to talk about, they've got P90s. This is the only version here that I'm recommending that's got Jazzmaster pickups in it. P90s are closest in sonic characteristics to a Jazzmaster pickup, in my opinion, mostly due to the similar construction method. But P90s are going to be a little bit higher output and capable of getting a little hotter. Another great choice is the Epiphone SG Classic with worn P90s. It's $429. It's got a green transparent finish in addition to the red transparent finish that you normally see on SGs. But the green finish looks super cool, and I'm a huge fan of it. Definitely check it out. I, I want one now. <laughs> Just after seeing the paint job, I want one. The last option here is the Epiphone Wilshire. It's $499. It's a recreation of a highly sought-after guitar originally made by Gibson in the 60s. It's a very high-quality offering by Epiphone with a mahogany body and a set mahogany neck and lock-tone hardware. For this demo, though, we're going to be sticking with a Squire Jazzmaster. For amps, Chris seems to swap back and forth between two. An 80-proof Blues Junior, which goes for two grand or a 62 Princeton Chris Stapleton signature, which goes for 2200 bucks. The 80 Proof is actually a super cool amp fender made, so if you like relic guitars, you'll like the 80 Proof, as it's got the relic look in spades. But the 80 Proof, in its name, actually references the fact that the cabinet is made from old bourbon barrels. It's also got a spring reverb tank and an internal fat switch for the boost. Both of these are important when we get to our budget version of the rig, you'll see why. The 62 Princeton is Chris's signature offering from Fender. I find it kind of funny that he's got a 62 amp to go with his 62 Jazzmaster. I wonder if that was on purpose at all. I'd love it if it was. It's got two instrument inputs, one bright and one normal, volume and tone controls, and an integrated tube tremolo, but we won't be using the tremolo for this song. For our amp, we got two options. Of course, the Fender Mustang GTX 50, 
399 bucks, you're going to want to use the Blues Junior emulation here. But for this demo, we're going to go a little bit more bougie and we're going to stick with the Ignator Tweaker 15 for 600 bucks. Now I'm going with this versus the Mustang, as with such a bare bones rig, I think it sounds just a bit more accurate when I'm actually able to distort the power tube section on the Ignator. We've set our first toggle to Vintage, our Master to Noon, our second toggle to USA, our Treble to 40%, Mids at Noon, Bass at 60%, our third toggle to Clean, our Gain to 40%, our fourth toggle to Bright, and our last toggle to Deep. Lots of switches, the tweaker really lives up to its name. Let's give a listen to what our guitar and our amp sound like together. Now that tone sounded great, but gear choice from here on is going to get a little wonky and seem out of order, but I'll explain why as we go, and it's because of the unique setup of this amp. So just bear with me. First up is the Earthquaker Devices Plumes at 99 bucks. This isn't replacing another pedal. While it's a Tube Screamer clone, we're going to be using this to emulate the fat switch. It's a mid-range thick boost that's present on the Blues Junior. You'll probably notice that just from the tone of the guitar and the amp, it lacks some bite, some drive, or some breakup that we need for this song. So we'll be solving that real quick right here. I've set it to position 2 on the toggle switch, so it actually functions as a clean op-amp boost rather than a traditional Tube Screamer. And we've set the level to about 60% the gain to 10%, and the tone to 40% to keep things mellow. We're going to leave this as an always-on boost throughout the rest of these demos. Next up is the Dan Electro Spring King at 119 bucks. The Dan Electro Spring King is actually an analog spring reverb pedal that's surprisingly inexpensive. Other analog options from companies like Anasound or Surfy Bear can cost two, three, or even four times as much, which they all work wonderfully by the way, I highly recommend them. But the Spring King is probably the most inexpensive analog spring tank pedal you can get today. My only caveat to this is if you look at the size of the Spring King versus other spring reverb tanks, it's a bit short. So Dan Electro has included a digital delay chip to extend the repeats out a little bit for some more drip. Stock, there's no way to turn this off, but there's two relatively easy mods you can do where you either cut the delay chip out entirely or you add potentiometers to dial the effects out of the chip. I've done the latter here, so what you're hearing is only the spring tank itself. Spring reverb is very important here, and its drippy repeats are very apparent during the quick chord slaps during the verse. We've set our volume to 40%, our tone to 60%, and our reverb to 60%. Let's give a listen.
all about that drip. So when it comes to pedals, uh, he only uses a few, and one that we're going to actually be focusing on. It's the Union Tube and Transistor More. Goes for 295 bucks or $200 for their aptly named Bean Counter budget version. The Tube and Transistor More is a single knob, extremely clean preamp pedal that's made to push the front end of your amp into breakup. This is really important when you're using these types of limited control fender circuits to get the kind of breakup tone that we want. For this case, I recommend the Wampler Tumnus Deluxe. It's not much cheaper at 199 bucks, but it's hard to find a truly transparent boost. The Wampler Tumnus has the tweakability and the EQ to come extremely close to the same effect that the tube and transistor more is doing here. We've set the EQ to high noon, except the treble, which is at 60%. The level's at noon, and we put the gain at 20% to add just a touch of grit. Cheating a little bit, as now it's not just a boost, but it was necessary for the tone. And then we're going to leave the toggle switch to normal. We'll kick this in for the solo, and then we'll leave it alone for the rest of the song. Let's give a listen to our solo tone. All in all, I think this rig works insanely well for this tone and all for a grand total of 1437 bucks. That puts us at a savings of over just 2400 bucks compared to the original rig. It's still a bit of a pricey rig in its own right, but it's definitely a lot better than close to four grand. Next up, we're gonna be talking about compression in country music. Now I'm gonna be honest with you guys. There's one thing that I left out of describing in that rig there, and it was active the whole time, and is, in most cases, paramount to getting a good country tone, and that's a quality compressor. Compression is regularly used in country to get a squash sound on your attack, and it makes your tone sound much more authentic when you're playing this genre of music. For reference, here's our completed rhythm tone again that you just heard. Now here's that same tone again, but with no compressor. Quite the difference, huh? We'll be going over compressors as a famous piece of gear on another episode, but due to this being a somewhat non-linear use of these types of circuits, I'll keep it short and sweet and give it its own little section based on my experiences with it. To give you a little primer, compression in general is usually used to even out your playing dynamics and make everything sound a little more smooth. Some genres, like rock and metal, typically won't see a lot of dedicated compressor use as so little is required. Most guitar players here get the amount of compression they need from an overdrive pedal that's run out front or just from the high gain settings on the amp. Other genres see the use of quite a few different compressors that come in various flavors, and just like everything else in the guitar world, everybody's got their favorite. 
For an example of regular use of compression, I'm going to play a quick track that's got a bit of a drive behind it, and I'll be using the compressor to even everything out and make it a bit more pleasant to listen to. First up, here's the track with no compression. Now we'll throw a compressor with a relatively medium setting out front, and we'll play the same track again. You'll really hear the difference in terms of the overall volume of the track and how it's a lot closer when I'm digging into the strings versus when I'm quiet. Another common use of compressors is to set them extremely heavily in order to make your guitar signal as even as humanly possible. While this may sound a little bland in a regular setting, it's great for pedals like the Boss Synthesizer line that are using your guitar signal as a controller for another effect. The compression can make the difference between an even, smooth, professional sounding tone and a tone that'll miss notes, jump around with tracking, or just sound downright broken. As I mentioned before though, Country artists seem to be somewhat unique in the way they use compression pedals, as they'll typically dial them in for a very squashy sort of tone that's sometimes referred to as chicken picking. We'll go over the different types of compressors at another time, but for now, we're going to be focusing on raw style compressors, like the MXR Dynacomp and Supercomp, and 1176 style compressors, like the Cali 76, Walrus Deep 6, and MXR Studio Comp. To demonstrate this effect in a more obvious setting, we're going to play another track that's got quite a bit more plucking to it, first with no compression. We're going to take this same track and we're going to put the MXR Studio Comp out front. I really like this pedal as it's got similar controls that you'd find on a rack mount compressor as well as gain reduction LEDs to give you a visual meter of how the compressor is working for you. We're going to set it to some very extreme choices. The release is at 2 o'clock, the attack is at noon, and these release and attack times will leave us with enough time to hear the compressor working, which is important for this method of compression. We're setting a ratio to 20 to 1 which means for every 20 decibels that the signal exceeds the threshold, it's only going to let one more decibel through. It's really going to squash the loudest parts of the signal. Our input is at full, so we can really drive the compressor to maximize its effect, and our output is set to taste to integrate with our rig. Let's give a listen. As you can see, there's a huge difference between the first track and the second, with the latter sounding a lot more authentic to a country guitar tone than the former. Playing style probably wasn't close, but you know, bear with me, I'm not a country player. <laughs> this is just one use of compression, but it's very unique and creative, and it can make all the difference in your tracks, especially if you're playing country. 
Did you know the first successful vibrato system was actually the Bigsby vibrato? For a bit of explanation here before we get started, many people, myself included, refer to vibrato units like the Floyd Rose, the Stratocaster's vibrato, a Bigsby, or the Gibson Mastery vibrato as a tremolo. This is due to the fact that when Leo Fender released the Stratocaster in 1954, Fender published ads that called the Stratocaster's vibrato unit a synchronized tremolo, and the name stuck. Tremolo is actually an effect that makes your volume level move up and down, while vibrato changes the pitch. Since your vibrato units are causing the strings to tighten and slacken, thus changing the pitch, the proper term is actually vibrato. The Stratocaster is synonymous with its vibrato system. Almost every model, save for a select few, come with one, but it wasn't the first commercially successful vibrato system for guitar, and it actually sparked one of the first little spats between electric guitar manufacturers in the early years of the industry. Paul Bigsby was an inventor and small-time guitar manufacturer who made his name repairing and building guitars for larger country musicians at the time like Merle Travis. Merle Travis had brought Bigsby a Gibson guitar, which had an early example of a vibrato unit on it, the Kaufman vibrato. It didn't stay in tune, and it simply didn't work well. Bigsby wasn't able to repair it, so he ended up designing his own vibrato unit that worked worlds better than contemporary offerings. Bigsby built almost all of his guitars and accessories himself by hand, so production was somewhat slow. During the early 50s, a budding guitar company by the name of Fender, you know, you may have heard of them, was celebrating the release of their Broadcaster, later Telecaster model, and contracted Bigsby to make vibratos for their guitars. The partnership met with resounding success, and you saw a lot of tellies from that era were offered with Bigsby's on them, but Bigsby just couldn't keep up with orders. Fender then designed their own vibrato unit, which used a different spring placement and string anchoring method, thus to not violate any patents, and they released it with their Stratocaster models. Even though production was slow, Bigsby still saw this as a betrayal by Leo Fender. It also probably didn't help that the Stratocaster headstock was an almost identical copy to Paul Bigsby's headstock design at the time, which drove a wedge between two guitar giants who once shared beers on the back porch of another founding father at the time, little-known man called uh, Les Paul. I think the phrase we're looking for here is a uh, small world, right? <laughs> Reach out over Facebook, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com if you want to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I love interacting with you guys, and I'm happy to help with anything you got going on or any questions you have. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. It's been another awesome week hanging out with you guys, going over the history of different amps, and getting a little bit out of my comfort zone in terms of the genre we're talking about. But it was a fun time. I enjoyed it. I hope you guys liked it as much as I did. Can't wait to see you all next week. Take care.